Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Horace about the talk he did at Micromobility America on the total addressable market for micromobility. This should really be listened to in the context of the 5 billion riders talk that Horace gave at the conference and which is now up on YouTube. I really recommend that you go and check it out. Horace does an amazing job of mapping out the addressable market and the size of the opportunity that we have in the space. This talk is also a really interesting dig through Horace's thought pattern and the importance of being able to map this out in terms of framing up the opportunity that we have. In the meantime, if you haven't seen our latest effort, the Rider Choice Awards, I really encourage you to go check them out. It is our industry's version of the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Top Gear Speed Week, and the Webbies all tied up into one. You can select the best firms and vehicles in more than 30 categories and get them selected for consideration ahead of judging for Micromobility World, which is happening online on January 19th. We have many of the world's top brands in the world currently battling it out for the top spot in the bike, scooter, pod, subscription business, shared operator, and more from around the world. We've been blown away by the level of excitement from the community and are super excited to share the preliminary results with you soon. The first round of cutoff is coming this month and then again next month. So get your votes in quickly and we'll see you soon. And now here's Horace. Let's go. Okay. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Horace Deju. How are you today, Horace? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? It's super exciting to be back. And uh, we're just pumped about the last event we did. And uh, uh, the, the California just wrapped, uh, or America, as we call it now, just wrapped. Yeah. And uh, we both traveled back home. And uh, Yeah, well, we had tried to do this in person, but you know how these things go. So I, I figured it was about time we got back together and one did a small debrief on the show and just, you know, where we've got to, what you're thinking, you know, what your reflections were on the show. And then also I'm really keen to unpack a bit of your talk because that's now gone up as a YouTube video, but I wanted to unpack it a bit more for folks who are interested in it. It's called the race to 5 billion and it talks about the total addressable market of micro. And I think it's just a kind of another step forward on this, uh, building the case, building the canon. Uh, of why micro is important building uh yeah the theory as well yeah so so i actually had two titles for this let's do a little behind the scenes you know my talk is about tam and that was i was going to say that there's actually i had two titles in mind one is the one you see is the race to five billion that by the way is a take on a, a blog post i did about apple back in the day which, which actually not about apple but about ecosystems in general and computing ecosystems. And I called it the race to a billion, one billion, which is how fast did various platforms rise to the, to that one billion number and, and, and showing, for example, the speed at which iOS and Android were rising relative to the PC, the Mac, uh, which never got to a billion, but also you, you know, things like PlayStation or PDAs and back in the day or mm. BlackBerry or 
you know, a lot of these petered out before getting to a billion, but you see these, you saw these sort of trajectories and all of these were sort of indexed to zero at the same, like if they all started the race at the same time, obviously they didn't, they started different times, but you could see kind of like these, these almost rocket-like trajectories where, where, you know, it, it was a logarithmic scale. So they would look like they were reaching towards the, the very top of the graph, which was a billion. And here we're talking about a race to 5 billion, which is outrageous to think about, let's say, given the age of this industry, the, the five years we've been at it. But let me um, tell you about the other title, which was, and maybe it should be a future title of another talk, uh, which I, I love this brand, this name. Um, it's that micromobility always wins. And this too is mm. is is rooted in a in another idea that you know I was an early user of the internet before it was called the World Wide Web. At the time that we didn't have back in the early '90s, we didn't have www, you know, World Wide Web. We didn't have HTTP. Mm-hmm. We had we had another way to connect with each other, and we were called news groups. And news groups were you know basically bulletin boards. And, um, yep. and, and bulletin boards, there was one I was following, which was on microcomputers, which was, or microprocessors in particular, which were people discussing microprocessor architecture. It's very nerdy at the time. I remember very few people were using these text-based interfaces for the internet. And I, you know, this was Usenet, by the way, this, this bulletin board. I'm sure you can Google Usenet and there's a lot of lore about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is prior to my uh, using of computers. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but it was like between, this is when I was in a research lab between 1988 and 1993. So, so I was there five years. But it, anyway, so so I was reading this and, and there was this one guy, you know, this is usually these kind of zealots or these kind of characters out there who was like pounding the table on this idea that microprocessors are going to dominate all computing. And he was adamant. And he said his his tagline was mm. "micro the microprocessor always wins." Uh, mind you, this was an engineering based uh, discussion group, so people were discussing things like, "Okay, what about parallel computers? Uh, what are we going to do about massively parallel architectures? Like, you know, tens of thousands of computers interconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the right topology if you're going to do interconnected computers?" And and there was an era still where where the f- most powerful computers were supercomputers, which were based on single processors that were massive. They were like, you know, the size of a floor of a building anyway. Then these were just like using discrete components so that the processor itself was like the size of a refrigerator. Uh, not a microprocessor, but it was the processor of the mm-hmm. of, a, of a big computer was effectively a bunch of boards that were all working uh, with medium scale semiconductors. And and this guy kept pounding on about microprocessors. But then at that time, you were talking about 8286. Okay, something at that scale, which was, you know, the second generation of the 8086 architecture from Intel, that was like the standard for the PC. Mm-hmm. And it just was so weak in comparison to all these, you know, room-sized computers. Nobody really believed that it was going to scale, that this little thing could scale. But he kept saying how it's going to evolve in architecture, which it did. It went to risk. It reduced instruction set. Mm. But what was his thesis on why the microprocessors would always win? Was it just due to the speed of iteration and like the theoretical capabilities? Well, it was more what came to be known, what came to be so much repeated as the Moore's law and people knew about Moore's law back then, but it was like, okay, yeah, but that's just the, you know, that's just the theory. Right. But if you, you know, if you compound that theory, which is doubling the number of processors every 18 months and you do it for a decade after decade, you know, you do get to what we have today. In fact, you got by 2000, 
it was clear the microprocessor was winning. It was it was very clear. But it, but he was so. And the, the thing that struck me is like how many people argued with him mm. and how adamant he was and how persuasive he was. Frankly, that you know if you do the Moore's law calculation, it continues. And most people just said, well, it's not going to continue forever. It's going to have a limit. Uh, but he kept saying, no, it, it won't. So anyway. So micromobility always wins, just like the microprocessor always wins. And I have to make a case for that. I have to make a case not on Moore's law, but on some other law of basically, you know, disruption theory, if you will, or kind of just plain first principles, like first principles of physics and geometry and mm -hmm. cities and energy. As we, you know, we've gone back and forth on this topic, you know, with, with how much energy is necessary to move person uh, uh, one kilometer, you know, the uh, MOT uh, idea, you know. So there's a lot of foundational principles which which are just rock solid, the trip distance distributions and so on, mm -hmm. which compel us to say, okay, on first principles, this should win. But anyway, so that was one idea of how to frame this discussion. But, you know, after we we uh, discussed it amongst ourselves, we decided, well, let's focus on on being more the TAM or the, the total addressable market and be, uh, you know, really focusing or narrowing down the focus for this talk on how many people will be using micromobility. How do we measure our customers? How do we measure our addressable market or, or in other words, the uh, number of uh, available Riders, as I as I came to call them, and uh, and so if I may just go, go, kind of step through it a little bit. Sure, I think that yeah, the the key point is that like for folks who do want to come and see this, I I really recommend that you go and uh, watch it online because it's better if you do it. Like obviously, this is an audio version. The YouTube is uh, allows you to see the graphs and, and things like that as well, which I think is really important. Yeah, I'm not going to step through it now, but I just wanted to maybe give a behind the scenes as we're doing. Uh, thinking about how did I come to do this talk and sure. why, why did it end up in this, you know, like every movie, you, you throw a lot of things away, you know, on the cutting room floor. So the thing I wanted to iterate on was, okay, if we're going to think about a market, firstly, let's not talk about vehicles as much. Let's talk about users. Before we go there, the other thing that I think is really important is the like, why on earth are we even talking about TAM in the first place? Because I think that is the, you know, like based on the feedback that I'm getting from the industry, and and I know that's the same same with the team as well. It's just being able to go out and tell the story of how big this thing could get. Yeah, is super important. And in, in the frame of like a lot of the VCs, I think are just really upset about. You know, if you look at Bird and Halbers and the other companies that have gone public in the shared micromobility space, they kind of look at micromobility and have written it off and said, oh, look, this thing's, you know, dead. And, uh, you know, I thought this talk was incredibly important because it's, it's like reframing the the size of this market, right? It's, it's like, what's your TAM? Well, again, I, I could go back in history and see, you know, how many times <laughs> the microcomputer market died and how many times the phone market died and on its way. But it's you know I'm again that's not uh, proof that that this is going to to flourish. But I do want to again uh, come back to this question about measurement, and because it focuses the mind. If you think about vehicles, if you think about kilometers, if you think about rides, as as the shared industry might, okay, they're going to think about fleet size, they're going to think about pricing or how much you know revenue is per ride or mm -hmm. or or utilization we you know we've looked at this so-called unit economics 
that was that was kind of the measurement. I even we talked about remember years ago about the speed at which the uh, number of rides were were rising. Yes, um, it would be nice to be able to revisit that. Did you know? Yeah, but we haven't had a lot of data. But it, I I haven't given up on it yet. No, I haven't either. I was actually thinking that needs to be updated to not only include shared because if you actually included everything, you know, micro mobility kilometers, I think that's where we would start. That's where it starts getting interesting. We'll come back to that. Absolutely, absolutely. So the the thing about micromobility is that it's actually a superset of different modes. It's a superset of different use cases and trips and distances, right? So rather than the divide and conquer approach is like, well, again, the, the automobile ends up attracting a lot of attention and it is monolithic, whereas micromobility has been always smaller, but many categories. But if you add them up again, the thesis of micromobilities, if you add up all these small categories together, they actually combine to be much bigger. And so mm-hmm. it is with users. But let's focus on users for a moment, because like I said, the first point I want to make is that you should always measure users. Apple does so now, and you know they don't anymore give data on their the unit sales of their products, but they do give updates occasionally on the number of users using their products. I think I think uh, it's also harkens back to a famous uh, business uh, theorist and, and guru called Deming, who said that the purpose of the firm is the creation mm. of the customer. And, you know, I would I would slightly modify that to say that the purpose of the firm is the creation and maintenance of that customer um, and, and their satisfaction. And, and so if you companies measure customers because they sell a product or a service and they measure those things that they sell as opposed to who's using them, which is kind of secondary. That's maybe the marketing department has to deal with that. But it, it, it's very important to understand that the purpose of any technology is to create users and to, and to create satisfaction amongst them. Uh, that'll keep the thing going, right? So first question is how many people use the products? Now, with automobiles, it's actually pretty easy to measure because automobiles have a roughly one-to-one ratio between owners and mm. and users, although there's a multiple of about 1.2 to 1.5. It varies as to what the typical occupancy is. And you do have perhaps a household measure if you wanted to be kind of looking at it that way and saying, okay... Uh, how many households have a vehicle, how many households have two vehicles, and therefore you can divide it up by that. And then there's a motorization rate, which is dividing a whole population but then by the number of vehicles. But we can kind of guess approximately, if you use the rule of thumb, sort of roughly one-to-one, that there's about a billion drivers in the world. And there's probably a billion to a billion and a half if you include professional drivers, people who drive trucks, buses, etc. So you imagine that you have a roughly a 1.1 to 1.2 billion licensed drivers, but you have 8 billion people all together. Uh, we, we may have just crossed 8 billion people in the planet. Now, some are too old and some are too young, so they're not addressable to the automotive or even to the transportation market. But if you if you took that and then said, okay, well, isn't it natural that what we enjoy here in the in a rather developed, prosperous nations of you know personal mobility through automobility, wouldn't it be logical that more and more people globally will want to have this? And and they will. And and it's it's been proven that everybody climbs up that curve, including uh, China, which just did an amazing rise over, over the last twenty years. 
India is poised to do the same. And so you can easily extrapolate and, and project forward and, you know, in, increasing uh, middle class, increasing uh, urbanization. All these are driving prosperity, which are driving people's interest in, you know, or, or yeah. let's not just interest. They've always had interest. They're finally, their ability to participate as, a, as an individual let's say, user of mobility, right? Personal mobility. However, again, if you multiply that by the constraints you have, not in money, not in dollars, but in raw materials and in emissions that the large vehicles require, then you... When you say large vehicles, you mean like a standard car, right? Like a, yeah, the automobility. Yeah. Okay, so so the yeah. automobility world, you could pencil in and say, okay, well, at some point in the next 50 years, let's say, uh, we should see, not eight, but let's say we should see uh, 5 billion people using uh, personal transportation. So you can project the demand growth and you can project the economic growth uh, and the urbanization growth, et cetera, that all these things would indicate that there's going to be so many users of mobility product. And that's the problem is that you can't get there from here is the, is, is the way I talk about automobility. It would be nice. By the way, that one billion that we have today has taken a hundred years to build. It's remember that race to a billion for iOS and Android and personal computers. Well, they, they took between 15 years and even five years for, for the mobile industry and social media took, you know, one or two years to reach a billion like, like Facebook did or now TikTok, right? You, you know, you're, you're seeing these very rapid growths, but the auto industry, why did it take a, a century? In fact, by the 1990s or so, uh, the world only had half a billion. So we've added half a billion in the last 30 years. But the first half billion took the first the 60, 70 years. So it's an interesting question as, as to what is the natural rate of growth of automobility. It's undergoing a transition to electric automobility, which has its own constraints in terms of materials and cost. But to say that within this century that we're going to have 8 billion or 7 or 5 automobile drivers and owners, it's very hard to get there from here. So th that's kind of like, let's say, backing into this question of micromobility in terms of users. I do believe that we will mobilize 5 billion people or even more within the next 20 years. And this is what the talk is about, is you know building up that case. But let's be clear about how do we build it up from bottom up? Okay, so this is the top down. I just gave you the top down view. How many people in the world, how many were going to be needing this mobility, personal mobility, and how many of them are likely to be there in, let's say, X number of years? And let's ballpark the cars versus the non-cars. Okay. Sure. Now, the, the bottom-up approach is the way I actually present the talk. And the bottom-up approach means, first, let's look at historic growth rates and calibrate our minds around that. So we have history of automobility, history of other modes, or other, I should say other, other technologies out there. Then uh, point out the fact that we have many, many candidate modes out there, and let's cluster them and build up a categorization that is not too fine because you could argue, oh, let's throw in uh, golf cars and let's throw in, uh, you know, four wheel uh, quadricycles. Let's throw in three wheelers. Let's throw in all the two wheelers out there. Let's throw in skateboards. Let's throw, you know, mm -hmm. you start to build so many things and, and then you would need a market research for each of these individually. And that gets really unwieldy to try to keep track of all of these modes. And so let's go also find data that tries to measure 
subsets of this that are a bit already aggregated. So I go through this exercise of, of collecting about 50 different modes, clustering them into something that's more manageable, and then declaring declaring that we, we should be categorizing at the highest level on four micromobility categories, right? That there's really bas basically four, and that's scooters, e-bikes, and bikes. And then we have, so those two, by the way, those two are, let's say, at the top of the list. And then there's another two at the bottom, which is two and three wheelers, yep. which is an old, old archaic term that representing motorcycles and rickshaws and, you know, equivalent terms. Sure. And motorcycles includes also mopeds. Yep. And finally, uh, four-wheeler uh, micromobility, which we used to call heavy micromobility. But the four-wheelers, again, from a industry point of view, it's kind of a lot of this uh, potentially bigger vehicles, but not quite cars, right? And golf cars, I mentioned. Yeah. So the, the the thing about it, though, it, between the... But you have a weight limit on them as well, or you're not even going on weight limit at that point? Well, again, what I assume is that everything's micromobility because they're non-cars. Yes. Um, of course, the the so sub five hundred kgs approximately. Approximately, although again, we've we've been uh, flexible on that, and yeah. I think maybe the the right number should be roughly a hundred kilograms per passenger. So if you have a, you have a golf car with seven passengers, you know there are such things. I mean, I would throw that in and say that's perfectly adequate. You can also yep. say, well, don't include the battery. If, if, if you feel batteries are really, you know, a showstopper, then weigh the thing without batteries and, and you have a little bit of allowance for, for more weight to, to include sure, sure. heavier batteries. So, so there's a Citroen Ami is included, for example. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the idea is though, is that, is that, you know, I may mention two categories and then two others, right? The first two is scooters and bikes. And then second are so-called two and three and four wheelers. But uh, I drew a line between these first two and these second two. The first two are do not require a driver's license, and the second two do require a driver's license. And so as yeah. far as governments are concerned, they're drawing a line between these two categories or four categories. But that's one way to think about it. Also, with the license comes insurance. Typically, it comes different infrastructure, you know, permit. You can drive it on the, on the main roads and so on. And so there's a, a, a sort of a natural clustering into kind of what I call unregulated micromobility and regulated micromobility. Okay. So, but we, we, we do this for the purpose of building up data. So we need to measure these so that we can then measure the whole of micromobility. So let's measure scooters. Let's measure bikes. Let's measure two and three and let's measure four. And that mm. is how the data was built. It was like a giant pivot table that pulled all the available historic and forecast data on all of these subcategories based on multiple sources, which are sparse, incomplete, you know, ch cherry picking some numbers, uh, skipping over a bunch of things, but I consolidated all I could find on these on these four categories, right? So so I clump things together, but I, I try to make it so that we can maintain this data going forward, right? This was also an outgrowth of the e-bike data I used to maintain. I used to maintain just e-bikes, and then I started added scooter, uh, adding scooters. And remember, we piled these together into a stack bar chart or a column chart, whatever it's called. And then uh, we compare that stack versus, let's say, electric cars. And you could see like, oh, holy cow, like all of these piled up are bigger than cars. Yeah, e-bikes have gone totally nuts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So even even e-bikes alone, right, are bigger than cars. But the idea was let's be more precise, let's be more accountable and more citable and, and get a bunch of data. Also, by the way, into the, into that pivot table comes cars as well because the cars are well studied, right? So I pulled that data and, and then by the way, that data is also split into 
electric and non-electric, right? And so we can maintain the, this uh, comparison going forward, right? Because it's still important that we we understand how to measure this. And the beauty of the talk, okay, which as it builds up and, and is going to bottom up, let's let's find out how, <laughs> what are the right categories? Yep. How, how do we measure growth in general? How, where do we get the data? Um, and then finally, uh, what do we know? And, and then the cool thing was then once you have that data of units, then you can multiply everything by assumptions about price. And once you get assumptions about price, you, you get overall market Mm -hmm. in dollars, which is typically also very interesting. But this is for the vehicles only. And and then at the end, you can say, okay, maybe is this affordable? First of all, can 5 billion people be served? And by the way, then you you take this bottom up. I forgot to say this. You take the bottom up approach. And then remember my top down approach with 5 billion? And I said, well, actually, will the market of units that you're projecting by, let's say, 2035, satisfy a market of say two, three, four billion people. And you can actually make that a sanity check because the bottom up is based on a certain turnover rate, and a certain lifespan of the vehicle. So for example, in the car industry, about 100, and 100 million vehicles are enough to satisfy a 1 billion fleet size because the you know they last over 10 years and so you can see how you know the fleet size in and which again is related to the total number of users is reflected in the units sold per year which is what i'm doing in this exercise so the at the end we end up with let's say a bottom up build out of the 5 billion possibility mm-hmm. I do it in a much shorter time frame because I don't reach 5 billion within my time frame, but I reach, let's say, about, uh, you know, sufficient volumes to sustain about 3 billion people. Uh, but then I say, well, actually, this is not over in 2035. We think it's going to continue to 2050. And by that point, you know, taking a, a quantum leap, we would end up with 5 billion, very definitely possible. But that means that means we've solved the dilemma. We've solved the dilemma of how to mobilize 5 billion people without killing the planet. Yep. And that is, you know, maybe left unsaid at the end, but the, the whole presentation is like, what is the TAM? Well, the answer is 5 billion. How does that compare with cars? Well, by then, cars will probably be over two billion, but I doubt will be over three. So it's still over. It's going to be more popular, probably five to two. That kind of ratio. Plenty of the people who will have cars will have micro and vice versa. So it's not like they're exclusive. And so we can now finally say this multiply by emissions, and that's easy to do as well. And then present saying, well, here's our solution mm. for the transportation emissions problem in you know that that the world is facing so instead of saying you know crying that hey cars are bad and and micro is good uh listen to us more you know finally we have the 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 roadmap and we say we can address five billion people we can get them mobilized we can do so in a certain time frame and we can do that without uh, destructive footprint of the car as as an alternative in fact, I, I don't think you can do more than two billion. I just don't don't see where the resources from from a fundamental point of view are going to come from. So that's the talk. I think it's also the other driving constraints as well, right? Which is like infrastructure ability to absorb all that sort of stuff as well. When you when you're talking about like, in fact, yes, in Berlin. In Berlin, I first reached, uh, uh, I did another top-down analysis and I asked, okay, given the urbanization trends, given the, the economic trends in terms of disposable income uh, and, and historic patterns, right? We All this stuff is, is widely available. It's very foundational. It's very old data. It's very rigorously researched. 
all of that points to a certain demand. But my point at the time, in, 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 uh, I didn't do a unit analysis. My point at the time was a parking analysis. I simply pointed out that you just don't have the resources to accommodate these vehicles on an infra- infrastructural basis, that all these mega cities that have 30, 40 million people in them cannot afford a US level or European level of parking and infrastructure that automobility demands, uh, which again, because you need three to five parking spots per vehicle in order for it to be usable. Uh, and because it sits 96% of the time. And so all these you know, arguments came again from the top down, but reaching yet another, let's say, uh, absurdity, which is like you, you cannot provision for these in an infrastructure sense. Now I'm coming at it. So I've done it also from emissions. And now I'm coming at, okay, not only can the car not meet the emissions targets that we are setting into law, today, right, with penalties attached if we fail. Not only do we not have the resources in terms of infrastructures and and land that we need to accommodate, the geometry doesn't work, okay? So the emissions don't work, the geometry doesn't work, we cannot serve these millions of people, billions of people, which by the way, a lot of people said, well, then just let's not serve them. Well, you try to tell them that they can't have mobility, right? Yeah, I mean, I do wonder, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is like the counter to that is, you know, say, for example, we shift to autonomy and you end up with, you know, the cars aren't sitting unused 96% of the time. They actually have a utilization rate of 80% or 90% or something like that and how that will change the thing. If, if folks can get Ubers anytime they want and they're reasonably priced, that's what they'd go to. Right. But two arguments. Number one is, you know, show me, don't tell me. Yeah. Don't worry. I'm in that same camp as well yeah (laughs) that's obvious yeah that's obvious yeah but the other one is that actually the the way people move is that they tend to all go at once we all sleep at once there are very few people who are out in this you know um, on our streets at night then there are a lot of people who commute and therefore you have this morning rush hour and you have this evening rush hour and so in order for you to accommodate that pattern of behavior you know these shared vehicles will have to somehow shuttle back and forth very rapidly in order to accommodate uh rush hour surges and um and that's uh that's yeah go on no no i mean i disagree with you on that one i think that they're you know like why do folks go in together why don't folks go in together it's like it's just ultimately due to convenience aspects right like folks would if they live right next to a train station and went right to where they wanted to go they'd be okay to share their ride especially if it was cheap but most people don't. Most people live in a suburb and the only option is available is a car and like all of these things. I, I guess my point is that like I do think it becomes harder. I think there'll be uh, like a shifting, uh, the capability of the vehicle and the capability of the service in general, especially with the price points that in theory that we're able to hit if any of this stuff gets commoditized. So let me try to square the circle this way. Sure. The, the shared car, which might be autonomous, competes effectively as a low-end public transportation system. Yes. What you're suggesting, okay. Yeah. Which which would imply that there's, the you know, the only things keeping people from using public transportation is that it's not door-to-door and it, it's inconvenient requiring a multi, multi-modes and multiple um, uh, switching of, uh, of modes. 
and that might be the you know might be the case but there's an argument that you know even the way that the shared car industry has developed is like very few people like to share uh with i should say ride hailing and, and you know very few people want to get in the same car with another person to share that trip now again i i disagree with this because I, I i love public transportation and also by the way everybody who flies in an airplane is using effectively public transportation it's just a flying bus but the, the fact is that there's there's still a big unknown about the psychology and about the practicality of what what effectively amounts to mass uh, you know uh, transit, uh, but in, done in, in small packages. Look, I, I'm not going to debate that. Again, all of this has to be sorted after we actually get the solution working to some degree. Oh, I, a thousand percent. Do you have, like, show me, don't tell me. I hear you. But I, 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 I just don't see it. I, I, I just don't see it, however, even given the geometry question, given the, the way, you know, people are living. If, if you're going to say we, we will not change our living arrangements where, where we live in, in suburban sprawl and commute into denser areas... Unless you change that, you you know the car uh, being autonomous does not really crack the nut, if you will. And and by the way, the the urbanists I, I read, I you know they're always citing this fact that you know this is there's they show pictures of traffic and they show this is what the world looks like today. This is what it looks like. And it's the same picture uh, with electric cars and as it looks like with autonomous. I, uh, the assumption that you're going to change behavior uh, is yet to be proven. So, let, let, you know, that's another debate. Oh, and I look, I am in agreement and, and I agree. It's another debate. So, okay. So, you got yourself to a question of like, okay, so we won't be able to get there with the standard car automobility model. But micromobility comes along and says, hey, look, we can do this. We can, we can, one, we can scale. Two, we're going to have billions of new vehicles. We'll be able to service all of these different uh, use cases in terms of, of riders. And then on the back of that, you can say, I'm going to multiply each of those units in theory of like what we can forecast yeah. with a unit cost price. And we end up with some level of total addressable market. Okay. So yeah, the, the, so the, I'm, I'm just jumping to my sort of concluding slides here. But then I, I said, look, all this bottom up stuff, all of these assumptions, all of the data we have, all the patterns we're, we're able to discern, uh, suggest that in, by 2030, the micromobility market will be 150 million vehicles sold per year. Uh, so, so that's kind of what this forecast suggests, that it will be built into a, a global fleet. What are we at at the moment today in 2022, just for, for context? Um, good question. Uh, at the moment, we are at about 200. So it, you know, it grows. Uh, no, sorry. No, no, no. That's sales value. Sorry. The units is today, uh, 2020, roughly. It's about 50 yeah. to, to, to 60. But if you include pedal bikes, uh, you know, sort of old-fashioned, we're, we're about 100. So it's, a, it's about the same as the car, the car industry today but we're going to grow to you know uh, 50% in 9 years which is which is you know quite a big growth the the global fleet which is install base the number of people using it as well is 500 million so half a billion by 2030 and it'll still be at 10 times automobility volumes in terms of you know the electric automobility and then there's a sales value in the number of users which is uh, which is expected to be under 1 billion you know order of magnitude my point was that the um, this is only 2030. If you go forward to where we're going to be uh, in 2050, I think the 8 billion people, of those 2 billion will drive 
and five billion will ride, and we end up with a uh, with a market by twenty fifty of seven hundred and fifty million vehicles per year, a global fleet of two and a half billion. Again, the, bearing in mind that that there's about two to one ratio here, so so those those vehicles are some shared, and so we end up with uh, with five billion users, uh, be running at fifty times automobility volumes uh, and two point five trillion dollars in sales value. So this was again the TAM punchline, 5 billion is reachable. This is the type of volumes we need to get there. And it's certainly doable by 2050. That's my assumption at this point, which again, meets up with the, with the demand equation. So this is the supply side and the demand side is, is roughly where uh, civilization wants to be by then. So that sounds workable. That sounds like not even that crazy, Horace. Well, it, that's that was the point of the exercise. When you look, when you do this exercise with automobility, you you start to reach some some hard figures. Like one of the problems I immediately got into because I, again, I'm I'm tracking the IEA's numbers, and you know, IEA's got mm. some some pretty impressive forecasts. Uh, you know, multiple scenarios. Uh, most of them, they are giving a, a share of, you know, electric. This is what they're focused on. Uh, everybody wants to know how quickly do we uh, electrify, and you know, what's the share of electrics per year, and and it's growing rapidly, to be sure. But the problem is that in the time frame we're looking at, 2030, 2035, the demand will also increase, and so the fleet size needs to be bigger. Um, and the share of, of electric needs to very quickly rise. So the electric numbers have to be very, very aggressive in absolute terms, not just in relative terms, like a percentage of, of total. Mm. But then you multiply that by the cost. And here's where this last year has been such a disappointment. We have not seen a reduction in lithium battery costs uh, as we had gotten accustomed to. Now, part of that might be temporary inflationary pressures. But there is a serious shortage also in battery production. We are seeing grabs or land grabs, so to speak, of raw materials and factory capacity, which is a, a sort of an ugly kind of competition if you're, you're effectively exclusionary by, you know, grabbing stuff. And as a result, as a result, and I just saw more data today, the average electric car in the United States is $66,000 sales price yeah. and it's 20,000 above the average price of a of a, a non-electric car uh, so something in the 40s which in itself is an outrageously high number uh, relative to where it was even 15 years ago or even 5 years ago uh where where you know an average mm-hmm. car could be obtained for like 20 to 25,000 that was 45,000 and, and you know electric car 66,000 and that's just not sustainable so you take these numbers and then you look at China it's it's not that much better you look at Europe it's not that much better and then you say okay what's going on is this temporary is this only for a period of time we're actually heading into a recession globally and yet these prices are ridiculous right and then you multiply this by let's say some you know conservative forecasts going forward even if even if the gap comes down what we need to see is electric cars in the twenty thousand dollar range? If you want an emerging market target, you got to go to down fifteen thousand or even ten thousand, and and it's ex- it's ex- totally. Well, I just I'm curious on what you think of that new Tata electric car that's just launched for ten thousand dollars. Well, that's where we need to be, but it's like Tata's had trouble selling the Tata Nano, which was one of the uh, you know the cheapest car in the world at the time it was like three thousand dollars. There was a lot of hopes pinned on it being sort of India's people's car, like the VW Beetle or the yep. 
the Ford Model T, you know. And I know because Clay Christensen was an advisor to Tata Consulting at the time, so he was a big fan of this product. Uh, and we also, you know, had to yep. uh, do a postmortem on it and ask why did it fail. So I'm all for a low end. Uh, automobile revolution. But when you start to look at India and you say, oh, what what is a two-wheeler in India? Well, well, Ola is selling like, you know, three to $600 two-wheelers, which are electric. Yeah. Uh, then you got three-wheelers yep. as well, uh, which are more sh- likely to be, you know, taxis and so on. So it, it, it's a huge gap still to try to move India into electrics. And in China, it's the same problem we have in the United States is like the high end is the only profitable part of the market. And so you multiply this by these billions of users and these billions of vehicles necessary to be built between now and then and all having to be electric. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't add up. And it and, and when you see that you got, you got a lop off three zeros to get that the price of micromobility equivalents, holy cow, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And this is why... Uh, I, I'm still refining my pitch, uh, how to make these this complexity of multiple constraints palatable to a mainstream audience. But I believed from day one, uh, just on intuition and obvious having some arithmetic or some uh, numeracy, like being... Uh, Numerically literate? Yeah, numerically literate. I'm <laughs> being illiterate right now. Sure. But being numerically literate is is like, you know, these things, these lines don't work. And so that was my intuition. I started to hack away at it. And now it's, it's coming together. But you do have all these constraints, populations, emissions, costs, raw materials, and demand, which is like incredibly, uh, you know, now in this century, we're going to see as much mobility being absorbed and being adopted in in, in decades that was a century ago, uh, only possible for very few. So th- that's my thesis. This is why I try to point out that micromobility is not just fun and exciting and profitable, potentially for a lot of interesting new ideas, innovative, etc., and it's going to solve a lot of emissions problems, possibly all of the personal transportation emissions problems, but it's going to enable 5 billion people to do more than they've ever done before. And that builds independence and, and uh, it builds um, prosperity, power, and, and, uh, and agency and all these other good things we need as a society, right? So that, that's why I think the first question is, this is what we're, you know, every every six months I have to revise this thinking, but is, can we do it? Can micromobility reach 5 billion people? Oh, and one more thing, which, which uh, remember I started with, with the computing. The smartphone market is about that size today. The smartphone market is about five to six billion people today, not in terms of sales, but in terms of units in use. Apple's got a, a bit over a billion of those. So obviously we have between um, four and five uh, non-iPhone users, which by the way, uh, it doesn't mean Google Android, you know, in, in China has its own variant. So there, there's a sort of China Android and then there's there's a kind of Google Android out there. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, This has been a topic I paid a lot of attention to five years ago before I did micromobility is looking at the adoption of smartphones and and mobile computing. And it was remarkable how from 2007 until about 2015, we climbed from zero to three billion. And so from 2015 until now, we've added another one or two billion. 
right? So th- that is one of the greatest stories of all time that we, mm-hmm. we you know, and, and it's the benchmark, I think, for micromobility that we should be able to reach as many people as smartphones have reached and to do it as quickly as possible. And we are not probably going to get there as quickly as the phones did. Obviously, they're smaller, easier to adopt. They're easier to put in your pocket than you then adopt a, a scooter to, or, or an e-bike to put it someplace. You know, I always point out the smaller it is, the faster it tends to be adopted. I mean, yep. this is one of the reasons why software like these uh, social media are so rapidly growing is because firstly, they take up no space. They're very easy to absorb. And secondly, they're riding on top of a mountain of other technology, which is the smartphone. Totally. Uh, yep. and, 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 thir- and, and thirdly, they're, uh, they cost nothing. Mm. They're offered for free. Of course, there's a cost, but you, you, know, you don't pay in, out of, uh, in currency. So the point is that we cannot hope to be as fast as social media. We cannot hope to be as fast as maybe the smartphone was, but we could probably be as fast as the personal computer or the internet as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think those grew over 15 to 20 years. And so you know, and th- and by the way, once you get to five, are you done? Probably, you know, there's a saturation point, and I would guess that's it. And also, by the way, there's a point of inflection in this, which is when you go from, uh, you know, constantly accelerating to starting to decelerate. Uh, and that if you get your timing right, then that moment is peak growth. That moment is when the industry is just busting. I mean, it's just going to be that moment of everyone agreeing that this is the greatest thing. Uh, the maximum uh, uh, rate of growth in, in, in share prices and everything else. So, so capital needs to allocate itself very carefully to hit that moment in time. And this is why it's important to first understand how big are you going to get? Mm. And secondly, how quickly it's going to take to get there. Then you can draw that curve and sort of plot where you want to be on it and what kind of businesses are going to be the prosperous ones as you as you go up the adoption curve. Again, all very well understood process. But uh, and I've looked at a hundred of these. So yeah, but but first things first. How big is the is the is the graph? What does a hundred percent adoption mean? And then I don't think a hundred percent for us is one billion. I don't think it's two. I think it's at least five. Yeah, Look, I've been incredibly excited about the work that you're doing here. And the one thing that I'm still, you know, so just so I can get my head around it, and and I'm conscious we've got like one or two minutes left. But like, what's your average sales price assumption for each of the categories? I'm glad you asked this question. I got the slide just for it. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so so we got a vehicle pricing slide. Here we go. Yeah. So just before we do that, let me show you the automotive one because- So for folks who can't see, I just want to read these out. Like re- read these out for us, Horace. So we've got average price of cars in the US is 65,000 and uh, for electric and then uh, internal combustion is approximately 55. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, let me try to explain. Basically, there's four- graphs here showing the US, Europe, China, and worldwide. So US, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, Europe is about the same size, a bit more in people, in terms of people, but economically uh, also about the same. And then China, which is a billion people, also probably roughly economically the same as the other two. And then worldwide is everything else. Now, in these markets, I split it into electric car pricing and, and internal combustion pricing, and then sort of a blend of the two. And the problem is that, again, the U.S. historically has just seen a, a, a torrid increasing prices. And I, I'm hoping that it's going to flatten out. So my projection is is that the electric pricing is, is not going to keep rising, but it's uh, somehow still above 60. And because of the mix going more electric that the, you know, that somehow the, yeah, well, anyway, it's, it's in the graphs you'll be able to see. China, um, Europe is actually weirdly going to be a bit cheaper 
historically, and this blew my mind, by the way, because I grew up in a, for decades assuming that cars in Europe were more expensive than in, in the U.S. And, and, and that, that was always true because of taxes and other things. But we're actually seeing now that the U.S. pricing is going to overtake the, the European pricing because of the mega sizing of American vehicles, even more than the European mega sizing. Uh, and then the Chinese pricing is sticking around 20000 and and worldwide is somewhere between the European and the Chinese model. Yep. So we're looking at like about $40,000 per electric car at this point worldwide and about 25000 per ICE vehicle worldwide at this point. Right. But that worldwide is... On average across the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's right. So it's... Yeah, yeah great. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. So then popping into, into uh, micromobility vehicle pricing, I, I price them also according, uh, well, not according to region, but according to vehicle category that I mentioned, scooters, e-bikes, there's a label that's wrong here, but it's two and three wheelers and then four wheelers. So those four categories, and then looking at the regions within those, those categories, right? And, and so, uh, again, there's a lot of, there's not maybe any punchline in this. You can sort of look at it and say, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, and for the folks who can't see it, we're talking about, at the moment, for scooters, we're talking about $1,200, $1,250 like for a scooter. Average e-bike at the moment would be what, like $1,400? US? No, no. So it's a little bit, I think you're reading the end of the scale, which is about 2030. So I think 2022 uh, scooters are around uh, 1100 or so. Sure. Um, maybe a little bit something like that. Um, and then, the, yeah, for e-bikes, uh, Europe is much higher, for example, uh, above 2400. And then the, the other countries, China's at the bottom with, uh, you know, under 1000. And then Three wheelers are are quite also quite a, a spread because uh, two two and three wheels because you you know European and U.S. motorcycles are premium products that are sort of enthusiast market recreational product but in India they're much much cheaper and in China they're much much cheaper mostly they're also smaller they're like you know between 100 cc and 250 cc and then and then four wheelers once again we have quite a diversity there between uh, Chinese LSEVs, uh, European so-called uh, quadricycles, and then um, American uh, golf cars. So again, try to boil all these things together to get a, an idea of pricing and and then multiplying these by the volumes to get the, the value for the whole market. And Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the part that I want to get to. So on average, what would you expect per scooter? It's about like when you're thinking 2030, if we're looking at the total overall thing, you're looking at a, at a scooter price point of fifteen hundred bucks, bikes at sort of sixteen hundred. But again, that the assumption, my assumption is that basically I'm putting a growth rate on this, which is a single number that you're you're multiplying everything by, right? And it, yes, that's not reality. Reality is going to hop around a lot. But the question you got to ask yourself is: Do we believe that scooters are going to go down in price, or they're going to go up in price? especially as historically they've been going up. Mm. That is the problem. If you've got about five years of data and this seems to be indicating that, yeah, you know, they're getting more expensive because they're getting better. And the idea of a very cheap scooter at two, $300 is no longer that attractive to either the buyer or the maker. So the, the this is why I wonder whether the average pricing is going up on scooters uh, and everything else, there's there's a tendency to sort of slightly go up. And this is 
it's it's uncomfortable because I mm. would like to see it go down and maybe we will have, let's say, the introduction of another form factor or another category. One thing that's missing here, for example, are what we saw at the conference, like from Wheel, which are these, it could be called e-bikes, but they're yeah. throttle e-bikes, but therefore they, uh, they act more like low-end mopeds did, you know, without necessarily pedals on them. So that category is as yet undeveloped. Uh, it might be a very interesting, the throttle e-bike might be a very interesting subcategory of e-bikes, uh, which, you know, you, you can struggle with because uh, it's not clear that that makes it a bike at all. It should be maybe a, a, a what's mm-hmm. called a two-wheeler. Will it require a license or not? You know, that's another thing and the different territories will handle it differently. But here's the thing I'm hearing from people working on that category, right, is that they're thinking that, hey, we can make this a lot cheaper. We can make this with new processes that are, because bikes, you know, here's a funny thing. Bikes actually are expensive because of all these fiddly bits. Yes. All of these gears and derailleurs and cranks and pedals and brakes and uh, shifting cables. And Shimano having it, it's, uh, you know, hands around the throat of the industry. Well, yeah. and it's it's funny because I, I once worked out the bill of materials for an e-bike because we were at Bond trying to make our own and we did make our own and we, you know, wanted to see how far we could reduce those things. I remember well, there was one category of the bill of materials. You know, you have the frame, you have the brakes, you have the motor, but then it was called bike parts. You know, and I thought, well, that's kind of broad, isn't it? And they're like, well, that's an industry term. So the bike parts are exactly all these, you know, fiddly bits to the mm. chain and the, the, you know, the cogs and the de- gears. And that they all have these nomenclatures. And actually, if you strip that away, you save like a hundred bucks off the bike. Let's say, okay, maybe, maybe you can mm. get a cheaper set, 50 bucks. But once you do that, though, you also simplify the design so you could do something drive by wire, which is effectively you get rid of braking, too, because you can have motors that act as brakes. Yep. I'm going to have David on from Wheel to talk about this uh, and the bike that they unveiled at the, at the America conference, uh, the idea of a drive by wire. You know, I, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but there is a lot you can do with steady, like an electric car has fewer moving parts than a mechanic or internal combustion car. This is famous. You technically only Mm -hmm. need like the wheels. If you had motors in the wheels and and the doors, that's the only moving parts you have, you know, versus literally hundreds of moving parts in in an internal combustion vehicle. But if you can reduce the complexity of a bike by going down to its core and then simplifying, simplifying, and then building production systems like Ola did so that they can bring the, the price down, then boom, that's your disruption because you start then looking at two, $300 pricing for effectively an e-bike that now is in the thousands of dollars price. And so if that's possible, yeah. yes, I'd say we could see a, a, an interesting development going on there. Uh, same with scooters. If we can, like, if you compare a very clean design like Unagi versus some of the, you know, older ones that had to have cabling and had to have you know, braking systems that would include the disc brakes and so on, you do see some possible simplification also in the architecture of scooters. And and so there's there's potential innovate on, on, on these dimensions. So yes, I, I mean, my projections on micromobility vehicle pricing is uh, is that there won't be a drastic change in, you know, in the steps down in pricing. I wish there were, and I, when it comes, it'll be fantastic. But, you know, what's happening with cars as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think also as well, we'll further, go further and further upmarket. I can't wait to see what the vehicles, you know, a $30,000, you know, 
you know, two-wheeler looks like in that space. You know? Oh, it's, yeah, it, it bifurcates. I mean, absolutely, the high end of the mo- micromobility is going to be in the four-wheelers, you know, starting to touch automobile pricing. And and you will get your $10,000 electric car. It just won't be a car. It'll be one of us, you know, it'll be one of our vehicles. You know, the 10000 price point for micro today is, you know, it'll get you a four-wheeler. It'll get you a very nice possible um, covered vehicle. Uh, those are very few now, and, and, and actually very few are mm. sold, but that could be uh, a big big growth here. So by the way, the other thing that people look at and say, well, how many dollars at the end of the day? And this is one of the, the harsh realities. What I'm, what I'm getting at here is that if you take these numbers and multiplying the, the volumes I've just been talking about, yes, you do get some nice numbers for micro, like $2.5 trillion, But when you look at the automobiles, it's breathtaking. The amount of dollars that you need to if you assume that it's going to grow to you know doubling or even tripling, the rate of price increase means that it's more than that in terms of cost overall that needs to be all the money that needs to be spent on automobiles. Now here's the reduction to an absurdity that I'm, I'm having a hard time communicating. What that means is that the world has to have a lot more money to buy cars if that's the case, right? So the auto industry goes from one let's let's uh let's say uh one trillion to three trillion although that's a uh let's say a, uh, an estimate but it's it's ballpark mm. right so you're tripling the spend on on automobiles but where's that money going to come from when you look at micro this is the, another another reason why you back into micro if you look at it it's like you, how to get five people moving is not by having everybody afford 30 40 50 thousand dollar electric car it's by like oh, offering to them 300 400 or 500 dollar micromobility options and yet the industry going around saying rubbing its 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 hands and saying as 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 the automakers are doing is like oh we're going to double or triple the amount of spend um, our industry is going to boom in the next decades mm. or so uh, that a lot of that it was driving the market capitalization of all, the auto industry, which doubled in 2021. Most of that coming in from uh, the electric car companies being bid up and up and up, as Tesla was, and, and but a few others as well. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and we do have run out of time, so I'm going to end us there. But look, Horace, this is always—I mean, I love these debriefs of of these presentations that we do at Micromobility America uh, or Europe. I think they're they're very useful. And for folks who do want to check it out, I will put up a link there. But Horace, thank you as always. Uh, great fun to to break it down again and, and and chat. And looking forward to having you back on. We've got a lot more to talk about, uh, especially around the world of micro and the opportunities that exist. There. You bet. 